Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome, everyone. My honour is to welcome Belkis Ville. She's the senior Iraq researcher in the Middle East and North Africa Division at Human Rights Watch. Before taking up this position, <clears throat> Belkis um, wa- worked in, in, the, in the Office of Human Rights Watch doing Yemen and Kuwait research based in Sana'a for three and a half years. And before that, she worked at the Geneva-based World Organization Against Torture, leading its Middle East and North Africa work from Tunisia program carrying out advocacy and trainings on torture um, and prevention in Libya. In 2011, Ville was a consultant to the International Commission of Jurists in Geneva. In 2009, she documented war crimes, alleged war crimes, excuse me, and crimes against humanity with the El Mazan Center for Human Rights in Gaza. And at a London solicitor's firm, she subsequently helped bring these cases to UK courts under universal jurisdiction. She received her bachelor's degree from Harvard, her graduate diploma in law from City University London, and her LLM in human rights and humanitarian law from the University of Essex. It gives me great pleasure to welcome her. Thanks. Thank you. Um, thank you first so much all for coming and being interested in, in the topics that I'll be speaking about today. And thank you so much to everyone from the university who's, who's allowing me to have this opportunity to, to speak to you and to have hosted this event. Um, I, I think maybe I'll speak just for a few minutes about Human Rights Watch, our work, what the job is of a researcher, because I think that's going to help to frame then the, the, the context of the, of the abuses that I'll be talking about. So at Human Rights Watch, um, we have an organization that's quite small, even though I think globally the coverage of our work is quite large. We're 400 people, and about a quarter of that are the researchers. We have 120 researchers covering 90 countries in the world, as well as certain thematic areas. And so that means basically you've got one researcher per country, and sometimes um, you, you know, you've got one researcher covering multiple countries. Um, Our methodology, if you want to sum it up in in, uh, three words, is naming and shaming. And the idea is that an abuser doesn't like to be known as abusive. And abusive powers try to hide the abuses that they carry out. And so our job as Human Rights Watch is to uncover those abuses in a very loud and public fashion. We do that through our written products, so it it ranges from a report of 120 pages to a short press release, a quote to a journalist, and and the written product is really just a tool. It's the tool to get to the end goal, and the end goal is to stop the abuse. And with this this written product, which is uh, based on tons of in-the-field documentation that I, the country researcher, will do, I use that to craft very tailored recommendations to the power that is committing the abuse, to any other power that has influence over that abuser. And then, and then we, we go around with, this, with the facts that we've gathered and with these recommendations to those powers in direct bilateral advocacy, and we push for, for, for the abuses to stop. Um, as you can probably imagine, when you're talking about a country like Iraq, 
there are hundreds of different human rights topics that I could be working on. And the question I get asked the most is, how do you pick what you, what you decide to focus on? And for us at Human Rights Watch, the measure isn't necessarily the gravity of the violation, it isn't necessarily the number of victims, but it really is the likelihood of impact. Do we think that by working on this issue, we can bring about change? Because if there's no real likelihood of impact, then since I'm just one person and there's only 24 hours a day, even though I try and push that sometimes, um, I need to be spending my time where we can actually bring about change. At the moment, in the context of Iraq, um, as you can imagine, most of the work that we are doing is very centered on the battle um, against ISIS. And we've been doing this work for, for years now. Since 2003, in fact, we have been documenting abuses that have been perpetuated by what are mostly Shia armed forces. This is because after the government of Saddam Hussein, which was a Sunni government, fell in 2003, you saw the rise of a Shia government. And with that, you saw Shia forces take over the army. You saw Shia militias that during the time of Saddam had been in exile in Iran, coming back into Iraq and uh, coming with them, uh, you know, bringing with them a lot of power to, to govern certain regions. And we saw this campaign of abuse that was meted out by these Shia fighters against the Sunni Arab population, sometimes in response to specific incidents, bombings of US bases, Iraqi military bases, and sometimes more in, 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 in terms of an act of revenge against this segment of the population that had been privileged under, under the previous government. And since 2003, as Human Rights Watch, what we've been saying, particularly to the Americans because of the level of agency they have in Iraq, if you allow these abuses to continue with impunity, which are really targeting one segment of the population, you're going to get a very nasty reaction. And as we view it, ISIS really is that reaction. And so it's incredibly frustrating that for so many years, the powers that be in Iraq, the powers that supported them, like the US, have been willing to allow this, this campaign of abuse to, to continue. And, and we find ourselves where we are today, where you have, you have ISIS in Iraq and you have ISIS in Syria. At the moment, we have the battle against ISIS. And this is a battle to retake territory that fell to ISIS in 2014. And in the context of that battle, our job as Human Rights Watch has been, on the one hand, to document the horrific abuses that, that ISIS continues to carry out. And, and we've documented for, for over two years now um, the horrific abuses against the Yazidi population, rounding up of women, uh, turning them into sex slaves, mass executions of, of Yazidi men, um, as well as any number of other um, abuses, particularly the ones you're seeing right now in this final battle. You're seeing ISIS start to use more and more chemical weapons against civilians under their control. Um, you're starting to see what, 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 it, what they've been doing historically but has gotten dramatically worse, which is the use of civilians as human shields. Now, in Iraq at the moment, there's one big city that's still under ISIS control to a certain extent. That's the city of Mosul, second largest city in Iraq. And right now, we find ourselves in the final stages of that battle to retake the city of Mosul. Um, and it's Iraqi forces on the ground that are leading this operation with the support of a US-led coalition that has a very, very large role being played by the Australian uh, government and the Australian military. 
And, uh, and what we're seeing is that with ISIS, as they've been pushed out of territory and they've been pulled back into the center of the city of Mosul, and now they really only have about two neighborhoods under their control, they've pulled back civilians with them, thousands and thousands of civilians. So the main neighborhood still under ISIS control is the old city, and in the old city, which is two square kilometers, they have 118,000 civilians. So I mean, that's incredibly dense, and it means that warfare is incredibly difficult. And that means that you're gonna get a lot more civilian casualties every time that a rocket get, gets launched into the old city, every time that a bomb gets dropped on the old city. And, um, and, and what we've seen sort of as a recent change of tactics only in the last few weeks is that they're starting to actually um, weld people into basements. So they're packing in two, 300 civilians into a basement, putting metal doors, and then welding them shut and keeping people there for days, and then stationing two snipers on the top of the building, sort of inviting an, an airstrike. They're also carrying out uh, really nasty sniper attacks on any civilians trying to flee. They've put metal uh, planks out onto the main roads so that if civilians start to flee, it's easier to hear them, and then snipers open fire, often actually tar targeting the children on purpose to make it even more um, difficult for parents to decide if they want to flee or not. There's no um, clean water left in the old city. People are surviving since months now on, on rainwater, and as you can imagine at the moment, there, there, there isn't much rain in Mosul. They're surviving on a paste that they're making out of wheat and dirty water. That's the only thing that they're eating at the moment. And, and there's simply no medicine left and, and medical capabilities uh, in the area still under ISIS control. So that gives you a picture of, of, of what ISIS continues to do and, and, what, and what the civilians inside Mosul and still under ISIS control are living through. On the other side, you have the forces that are trying to fight against ISIS and retake the city. Um, on the ground, as I said, it's Iraqi forces. And our role as Human Rights Watch before this operation began, and I think it's a rare example of where Human Rights Watch can actually play a preventative role in trying to stop the abuses before they happen, as opposed to simply reporting on them after they've taken place. We looked at the work we had done on all the previous operations in Iraq to retake cities from ISIS, and we looked at the units in and among the Iraqi forces that were the most abusive, the ones that have shown very clearly that they have no interest in prioritizing the protection of civilians. They have no interest in abiding by the laws of war. And in the most um, recent example of that, in the battle to retake the city of Fallujah, a city near Baghdad, and that was the, the major operation that took place before Mosul started, we saw specific units go into one neighborhood, they rounded up 1,200 men just because they were from the same tribe and so had the same name. They split them into two groups, took 600 of them, put them in a military base and held and tortured them before uh, eventually local police actually found out that they were there and, and released the men. And the other six men are still disappeared to this day and we can only presume that they've been executed. And based on the research that we did, and, and it was it was very important that Human Rights Watch actually had documented that firsthand, had interviewed the men who had been held and tortured, interviewed the family members of those that have never reappeared, and interviewed investigators who have been looked, looking into what has happened to these men. Um, on the back of all of that, we were able to make a very public call to the Prime Minister saying, you need to announce that before Mosul starts, these specific units are not allowed to participate in the battle, and they are not allowed to enter the city. And 
because of the research advocacy we did and because of, of political reasons with the Prime Minister realizing that the battle for Mosul needs to look cleaner than previous battles, he made this announcement and he said these forces are not allowed to participate in the battle. The battle started in the east of the city. Mosul is split in half with the Tigris River down the middle. The operation started in the east of the city and the forces that took the lead are forces that 10 years ago I would have said are pretty nasty guys, but for the last 10 years have had extensive training, including on the laws of war, mostly by the Americans. And as a result, today, they fight a pretty clean fight. And, and in East Mosul, I think I, humanitarian colleagues that were on the ground, were blown away by the level to which armed forces were prioritizing the protection of civilians. And if you talk about sort of a clean battle, this is, this is the poster child. It was really something incredible to witness and something um, really exciting to see and, and, and to see that the commitments that the Prime Minister made to keep certain units out of the city and he made another key commitment that we as Human Rights Watch had called for, which was to ban the use of heavy artillery inside the city because there were so many civilians that we knew would be caught up in the crossfire. That was very positive. That operation lasted from October until January. But unfortunately, in the context of that operation, the, the fighters that have this sort of more robust training, they were obliterated. They have a tiny number left, so few fighters that they were not able to play any significant role in the second part of the operation, which is to retake the west of the city. And as a result, the forces that have now stepped in and are fighting the fight in, in western Mosul are forces that do not have this level of training. They sit under the Ministry of Interior. The Minister of Interior himself is actually affiliated to the most abusive uh, Shia militia in the country. Um, and, and as a result, you see no real interest in pri prioritizing the protection of civilians in a side of the city that's even more densely populated. And we're seeing yet use of heavy artillery by these armed forces inside the city. We're seeing them fire indiscriminate rockets into civilian populated neighborhoods. And at the same time, we're actually seeing a change not only in the tactics of these forces, but on the side of the coalition. So we're seeing American forces on the ground firing mortars from entirely um, inaccurate weapon systems into civilian populated neighborhoods. At the same time, you've got the aerial campaign. Uh, it's kicked up dramatically. And there, uh, the work that we're doing to look at how this aerial campaign is affecting uh, West Mosul is really done through satellite imagery. This is a key resource that we as Human Rights Watch are able to now um, utilize in our work, specifically in areas that are too dangerous for us to get to, or where we want sort of a bigger, a bigger picture of, of the, the way the violations are playing out. And so through satellite imagery and analysis that we've done of the west uh, of Mosul, you're seeing a level of destruction that we have not seen in any previous operation against ISIS in, in anywhere in Iraq. We, we're seeing more destruction than any operation in Syria with the exception of Kobani. And what's really changed is not only the number of bombs that are being dropped, but the sizes of the craters. So we're talking 10 plus meters for your average crater. And that usually is a pretty clear indication that the size of the bombs has gotten bigger. So now we've got the coalition dropping 500 pound bombs, 1,000 pound bombs, where they were using much smaller munitions. And the rationale behind it from the military perspective is, you know, we have momentum, we just need to get this done and we need to get this done as quickly as possible. The problem with that is that where we know ISIS is actually keeping civilians, like I said, 200 people welded in a basement, where we know that the density in this tiny area where the fight is happening is so high, 
what we should be seeing is actually the opposite. We should be seeing the coalition taking even more restraints, um, taking certain weapons entirely off the table, weapons that under uh, the laws of war are, are entirely legitimate to be using in normal circumstances. But actually in this context, in this small area, with this level of civilian density, these things should be taken off the table unless we want to see a continued mass spike in civilian casualties, which is what we've seen over the last weeks. In terms, of, um, in terms of the other major track of, of research um, that we've done, so not just linked to the conduct of hostilities itself, it's been the separate but essential part of the campaign against ISIS, which is the screening process. So the idea, and this was implemented by Iraqi forces and the Iraqi authorities the day that ISIS came onto the scene in 2014 and, and took territory, was that the government developed a list. It was a database of 8,000 names of people that they thought were ISIS-affiliated, and these were sort of a wanted list. Um, today, that list has 90,000 names on it. And there's a real question mark about how you get onto that list. Of course, you know, there are ISIS fighters who've ended up on that list, but I also know of many instances where people are ending up on that list because they had a land dispute with some neighbor who now is in a position of authority and has put their name on the list. I know of several instances where there were familial disputes and that's how someone ended up on the list. And I know several instances where a guy wanted to marry someone, the father or the brother didn't like the idea and so he put him on the list. So what happens is when you're fleeing an ISIS controlled area, you will get to the first Iraqi checkpoint um, as you flee. And at that checkpoint, all men and boys 15 and above line up. They show their identity card, and the identity card gets screened against this database. If their name pops up on that database, then they're wanted. If their name does not pop up, then they're allowed through. And then probably a few kilometers down the road, they'll get screened again and then again and again. I mean, we're seeing people being screened four or five times. Then they get to a camp. They're housed inside a camp, and right now, in the context of the Mosul operation, you've got 600,000 people that have been displaced. And inside the camp, there is a continuous screening process going on. Um, we have been documenting hundreds of detentions that are happening from inside camps. And at that stage, it happens because a fellow neighbor from your village sees that you made it to the camp and tells the camp management, no, you know, this guy was, this is, this guy was ISIS or he was a sympathizer of ISIS, or because someone overhears a comment that you say or, or, or something to that effect, and then you get detained from the camp. Now, as Human Rights Watch, we entirely understand the national security concerns and we understand the desire to be um, detaining ISIS fighters. And as Human Rights Watch, we have spent the last two years documenting horrific abuses by ISIS and believe that the victims of these abuses deserve justice and deserve to have their day in court and for these fighters to be held accountable. However, what we're also seeing is that the way this screening is being done and what happens to you once you get flagged is highly problematic. So if you get picked up in this screening process, you disappear. We have looked at over 100 individual cases. Not a single family knows where their loved one is. There is no notification by the government. And uh, what's even more upsetting is that when we had a meeting a, a few weeks ago in Baghdad and we raised this with the Minister of Justice, who has eventually the detainees sort of come under his authority. Uh, he said, oh, that's not our job. It's, for, it's the job of the family to find an international NGO, and an NGO can come and ask us if we have the guy or not, and if we do, we'll say yes. 
So there's really no understanding on the side of the Iraqi government that this is not only something they should be doing, but this is something they're obliged to be doing. We have been able to locate some prisons, some very makeshift prisons. Essentially, it's abandoned houses being used to hold these guys. And we found 1,200 guys that are being held because they were flagged in the screening process. And I've worked, as, as one heard from my introduction, for many years in the Middle East. Um, and this specific, these specific facilities are by far the worst in terms of conditions that I've ever seen in my career. Uh, just to give a very short example, um, to, to give a sense of what we're talking about, we went into one room in this abandoned house, and it was four meters by six meters. There were 114 men in there. They've been there for four months. They never leave the room. They never get any sunlight. There's a toilet inside the room. They eat inside the room. There are no showers. And they just sit there. Now, theoretically, what's happening during that time period is that investigators from Baghdad come up, they interrogate these men, they interview fellow villagers to figure out if there's enough evidence that this person was affiliated with ISIS, they bring him before an investigative judge after that period of investigation, and then if the judge thinks there's enough to charge him, then the case gets transferred to Baghdad. If this person is found to be ISIS affiliated, and unfortunately that term and the reason that, it, that I use a broad term is because it is that broad and it can be anything from you were running around with ISIS shooting people to you serve tea in your tea house to ISIS. If you get convicted for ISIS affiliation, then there's only two sentences that you can get, which is life in prison or the death penalty. And recently there was an amnesty law that was passed where the burden of proof is on you, the individual who's been convicted, to show that you joined ISIS against your will and that you didn't hurt anyone while you were a member of ISIS. If you can demonstrate that, then you can get out under the amnesty law. The very, very disheartening thing about, about all of this, and, and this is really aside from the horrific abuses that we're talking about that are happening in the context, including holding people in degrading uh, conditions, torture during the interrogation program, and what is essentially an, a campaign of enforced disappearance. What's so frustrating about all of this is that this campaign of enforced disappearance was a key factor in the rise of ISIS. This was a campaign that Shia forces were targeting the Sunni Arab community with, and hundreds of men were disappeared, and their family members, young men, went and joined ISIS as a result of that. And what, what we try and emphasize in, in our meetings, particularly with government officials from the coalition, and I'll be going to Canberra on, on Monday to meet with colleagues from, from, your, from your government to raise this issue, is that the global coalition in the fight against ISIS needs to be just as concerned and willing to put resources towards the military battle against ISIS as the political battle. And the political battle is getting the Iraqi authorities to stop allowing this campaign of abuse that is going to continue to be a push factor for young men to join ISIS. ISIS in a few months may not have any territorial control anymore, but already now we're seeing them morph into a traditional terrorist insurgent group that is going to continue to be bombing Baghdad and going to continue to be bombing Damascus and may continue to be bombing cities um, in, in the US and, and in Europe. And the battle against Mosul is meant to be the final battle against ISIS in Iraq, but if this battle actually is opening the floodgates to a campaign that's going to promote people to continue to join ISIS, um, as I said, that's incredibly frustrating. And, and, and I think, unfortunately, in, in that reality, we're not going to see the end of, 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 of organizations like ISIS in, in Iraq. 
I'll talk maybe very briefly about, um, about reconciliation and justice for victims of ISIS, as well as justice for, for, for victims uh, of the forces on the ground that are fighting against ISIS. At the moment, everything is really stuck. And the reason that it's stuck is because the Iraqi justice system is dealing with thousands and thousands of people, as I, as I indicated. You know, we saw the 12, 1,200 men in, in these facilities, but there are hundreds that are being transferred to Baghdad. And for prosecutors, the easiest thing to do is use the counterterrorism law. Charge someone with ISIS affiliation. As I said, it's a very broad term. It's easy to demonstrate relatively. And that way, prosecutors don't need to do the hard work of proving that you carried out a massacre, that you had 10 Yazidi sex slaves. And as a result of that, what we're seeing is that hundreds of men are getting convicted, are getting the death penalty, or are getting life in prison. And the victims are not getting any opportunity to have their day in court, any opportunity to feel like justice is being done for them and for what they went through. And, and unfortunately, I don't see any political will in Baghdad to change that because they say we're so overwhelmed, we don't have the resources, we don't have the energy, we don't have the time. So we're going to take the most practical and quickest route. In terms of broader reconciliation, even if you leave out sort of the justice element of it, what you've also had developing, which I think is one of the most concerning things that I've witnessed um, since October, since the Mosul operation began, is that there was this theory before the operation began, a theory that Baghdad had, a theory that the Americans had, a theory that other coalition partners had, which was in previous operations, we've had so much abuse because it was Shia forces that were participating. And if we can get Sunni forces, tribes and tribal fighters that are from the same tribal areas that they're going to be coming back to, they're going to be much less likely to carry out abuse. Now, when ISIS came onto the scene in 2014, you'd have half the tribe that would leave very quickly and the other half of the tribe that would stay and live under ISIS. So these are the tribal fighters that are coming back, the segments of the tribe that fled in 2014. What nobody factored in is that these tribal fighters think that they are even more entitled to exact punishment because they say these are our tribal members, they should have fled, they stayed, they were complicit with ISIS, they damaged the tribal name, and now we have the right to exact revenge. And because this is an intertribal issue, Baghdad has absolutely no authority to be intervening. And in the context of that, what we've seen is tribal forces coming into areas after the Iraqi military has pushed through, they're now in control. They decide, you know what, I don't know why the government didn't detain this guy or this family. I think that they're ISIS. And they get rounded up. They get executed. We're seeing more and more bodies popping up in and around Mosul, bodies that are lying on the side of the road. And the thing that all these bodies have in common is that they're all blindfolded and their hands are all bound behind their backs. So these people were very clearly in custody at the time that they were executed. And what we're also seeing at the same time as this is a campaign of attacks on the so-called ISIS families. So if you had a husband or a son who joined ISIS, the feeling now by those in power is you should have killed him. It was your obligation to kill him. The fact that you did not kill him, but you allowed him to come home every night and sleep in your house and you fed him makes you an ISIS sympathizer. And we as the tribal authority are gonna punish you for it. So we're seeing that manifest itself in sort of vigilante attacks, 
So in certain towns, we're getting grenade attacks on a sort of weekly basis on the homes of these families. And when the families go to the police and say, can you, can you do anything about this? The police say no, and in fact, we really think you should leave. You're not welcome here anymore. What we've seen has gone actually dramatically further in some areas. We saw um, in January, Sunni tribal fighters with the backup of the Iraqi military and Iraqi military vehicles roll into one area. They rounded up by force 125 families that they said were ISIS affiliated, put them onto these trucks against their will, drove them to a camp, a camp that had been established to be a regular camp for people displaced by the fighting. And they said, now this is gonna be a prison camp. These people are gonna stay here potentially forever. No cell phones allowed, no visitors allowed, no in or out. There's no school in this, in this, in this camp. The, the conditions in the camp are, are horrific, mainly because the humanitarian community will, is refusing to provide assistance there because it is actually being used as a, as a prison and not as a camp. And these people have no idea what's gonna, what's gonna happen to them. And in the context of that reality, where you've got thousands of families being moved out now, the idea of reconciliation seems quite far-fetched. And unfortunately, what we would need to see is a commitment towards reconciliation and re-enfranchisement of all these you know, thousands of families that lived outside of the Iraqi government's control for three years while they were under ISIS. What we need to see is that program, right? Re-enfranchise these people, reintegrate these, these families, but instead we're seeing the opposite. And we're seeing the opposite at the tribal local level, we're seeing the opposite at the Baghdad level, and we're really not seeing any any um, sort of either Iraqi leadership from Baghdad on this, and we're not seeing the coalition nearly as engaged in this issue as, as, as they should be. Um, I think maybe I'll stop there. Um, I know I've, I've covered a lot. I've also left out a lot, so I haven't talked about a lot of the other work that we do in Iraq. Some also uh, linked to the armed conflict, but then, then of course, a lot of other work that's, that's not linked to the armed conflict. So I'm happy to take questions on anything that I said that wasn't clear or, or anything else. Thanks, Belkis. Um, I could start with something. You noted that the, um, the highly trained um, military that began the operations in East Mosul were essentially decimated. And so that the, the new um, um, tranches that came in didn't have that same training. So I had a couple of questions on that. One is, um, is the fact that they had the training in any way related to the fact that they were decimated? I mean, we want to believe not, right? We don't want to believe that just because we've engaged in human rights um, me methods, we're actually decreasing our chances, but I wanted to hear that from yeah. you because I can tell you have a refreshing honesty about you. And the second is, in terms of this kind of a training, how long does it ta take for, for that kind of upskilling to happen? I mean, is that something you can throw at forces relatively quickly, or is that kind of a long-term process? Thank you. Thank you for those questions. Um, I would say the answer to the first question is a resounding no. I don't, I don't think it is because they have a higher respect for the laws of war that they were, that that's why they were decimated. And I think the reason I can, I can say that with such certainty is because when you look at the casualty rates among fighters in the West, the, the numbers are even higher. And, and the reason that the civilian and military casualties in Mosul are so much higher than in any previous operation is because this is the final stand for ISIS in Iraq. 
They have no interest in fleeing the city like they did in previous operations, but they're stuck in. They're going to fight to the end. These guys know that it is the end and there's no real future, so might as well die in the fight to, to, to maintain what you believe in. But you, you have nowhere to go. And Mosul is completely encircled, so they have no escape route. And as I said, you know, the one thing that they do have is civilians, and they're going to use the civilians as, as best they can. Um, in terms of the, the length of training, I, I would say that just looking at these forces in Iraq, it has taken years. It is an extremely long, drawn-out process, which is why the damage that has been done by losing this many fighters is going to be felt for a very long time in Iraq. And maybe to flag something that poses a real challenge for us, poses a real challenge for people on the military side, particularly in the US, is the reality that because of US congressional legislation, if a force has been demonstrated to be committing abuse, the US cannot give it any money. So the forces that are playing the key role in the west of Mosul, they actually cannot receive this kind of support and training by the US. As a result of that, while you know, we were an organization that championed the passage of this congressional rule. At the same time, how are these forces going to get any better if they're not getting the training that we've seen has worked with previous forces? With these guys in West Mosul, though they can't get any support from the Americans, funnily enough, you see them running around with tons of American hardware. And some of you may have seen a, a story that came out about three weeks ago in the news. It was um, a photojournalist, an Iraqi photojournalist called Ali Arkadi, who was embedded with one of these units from the force that's now playing the, the lead in West Mosul. He started out his, um, his journey wanting to document essentially the story of this set of heroes, these heroes who are fighting to take back their country and for the integrity of Iraq. He was embedded with them from November until December in areas south of Mosul and then getting closer to the city. And during that time, he witnessed eight incidents where they tortured and executed villagers who they said were linked to ISIS. He came back from this trip. He shared the footage that he had with some colleagues from a, a journalism platform that he, that he works with, Western colleagues. And they said, we need to get you out of the country immediately. They evacuated him. They evacuated his family. And then, as I said about three weeks ago, he put everything out. And what he depicts is absolutely horrific. It is absolutely disgusting. But unfortunately, it's, it's definitely not something that took me by surprise. It's something that we know the Iraqi forces have been doing in, in different units for a very long time. Um, what's changed in Iraq is actually that they've become more savvy to saying maybe we shouldn't capture this on camera uh, because that looks really bad. But I don't think the abuses have gotten any better uh, since 2003. And it's just, you know, the, the, the specific forces that are doing the abuse has changed slightly. Um, what he depicted, I think, does capture very much the flavor of what you have in West Mosul and the type of forces that you have taking the lead. And I would really... Um, Welcome everyone to later go Google Ali Arkadi and you'll see um, what he's put out, which is incredibly powerful, as I said. And, uh, and unfortunately, there's a, very, uh, there's a very clear link to the U.S. forces, even though, as I said, these guys are not meant to be getting any U.S. support, in that one of the guys in this unit, one of the guys who you see torturing and executing, um, was the key liaison officer for the U.S. military. And, uh, and he even said, which the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad refuses to respond to, he said he has a U.S. passport, and he continues to have this liaison role with the coalition at large. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that's...
Right, that's a very sobering and complete answer. I have lots of questions, but I'm going to bore her later, so I think it should come from you. Uh, I'm interested to know what what, um, what uh, you think that the reconciliation would look like, um, or if that's been worked out. Uh, I'm just like thinking of other historical precedents, mm -hmm. like uh, you know, after, after the genocide in Rwanda, there was kind of a, a process whereby people kind of went back, but then it, it wasn't. Well, they had a sort of truth and reconciliation commission, yeah. something like South Africa, but in South Africa it's a bit different because we're talking about a change of of the the central government. Uh, but I think with with Rwanda, because it was on a much like broader national scale for them, I think that's a bit different. So I'm just I'm interested to hear what you think would be the best way mm -hmm. forward for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's um, the reason it's a tricky question is because I think the only way to have a robust reconciliation strategy is if you have buy-in from the leadership, the upper leadership in Baghdad, and if you have buy-in from the Sunni, the Sunni tribal community. And unfortunately, you have neither of those. And in fact, both Baghdad and the Sunni tribal community think revenge is the answer right now. Um, and, and, and so in, the, in that context, I don't think you, we will see reconciliation efforts going anywhere. I, as, as I said, on the justice side, I don't think we're going to see much by way of serious um, uh, judicial processes against ISIS fighters. In terms of what, what, what should be happening, I think you know, a lot of the work that we have, as Human Rights Watch have done, which really confounds the principle that I talked about at the beginning, when I decide my priorities, one of the key measures is to look at likelihood of impact. And on all the work that we've done on ISIS abuse, I think none of us are silly enough to think that if I write a press release about ISIS executing three journalists or ISIS holding sex slaves, that ISIS is going to stop doing that. And in fact, they're probably going to be pretty happy that, that they're getting more coverage for these types of abuses. And, um, and there, all of the work that we've done has really been with this sort of more mid to long term goal in mind, which is that we can help to participate in the drawing up of an accurate historical narrative. And that one day when the courts are willing to allow for justice processes to, 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 to move forward, that our work can help support that and support individual claims um, of those that were victim to, to ISIS abuse. I think the, 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 you know, the justice part of it is, is really important, and I think that's why we're, we're pushing so hard with the justice system. Um, and and there, the coalition has a key role to play. Maybe, maybe um, it's been picked up a bit in the news that Boris Johnson um, has been trying to spearhead this initiative, supported by the UK government, that calls for some kind of either international tribunal or specialized criminal tribunal in Baghdad that would be there for ISIS victims. That hasn't gone anywhere. And the reason that hasn't gone anywhere is, is, is frankly because the Iraqis, they say the most important thing in these trials is that the death penalty stays on the table. And to most uh, countries, Western countries, particularly all EU member states, then that means they can have no involvement in this process whatsoever. And so things have completely stalled at the international level. Um, but again, I think the key would be a commitment from Baghdad and the tribal establishment to say that revenge is not 
what we want right now. And instead, we need to put aside our differences and work to reintegrate and re-enfranchise the population. I think that would be sort of the key first step towards, towards reconciliation. Thank you very much for, for your presentation. Um, my question is uh, something to do with uh, you know, the other sort of frames of analysis that um, you do not use. Uh, so you use human rights sort of a, a frame. Um, those who sort of look at uh, the different sort of uh, transformations or reconfiguration of the, the region uh, use other sort of frames to sort of uh, not so much to, um, to minimize the, the extent of uh, the forms of violence, uh, horrible sort of forms of violence that you see with different actors, whether state or non-state, uh, faith-based or, 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 or criminal. Uh, and those are, you know, so one of the, 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 the question that uh, I'd like you to sort of uh, uh, comment on, whether it's really at the center of, uh, of your analysis or the work of uh, of a, a big organization such as Human Rights is, um, you know, the question of Kurdistan. Um, whether, when, and if Kurdistan sort of becomes an independent state, whether it, that mm -hmm. is going to sort of uh, uh, reduce the numbers of, uh, of violations, and um, and so yes, uh, you know, I did I did work on uh, as an intern at the Iraq desk in New York at the UN uh, Political Affairs uh, uh, Office. But I've also traveled uh, in, uh, in, in, at the border of Iraq and Iran. Yeah? And uh, I, did, you know, I don't speak uh, languages there, but uh, I used uh, interpreters uh, when I watched the news in Iran. And uh, they have a different narrative. Yeah? Uh, and not only the state, but also citizens. Of course, you can't have that one sort of uh, voice, one sort of um, a narrative. There are many, but the ones that are occupying the media scape uh, have a particular sort of uh, uh, message. And that is, yes, I'd like you to sort of comment in. Sure, that's if you can yeah. just summarize the entire Kurdistan thing as well. No, but I, I mean, there are certain d different elements to your question and I'll, and I'll try on, on, on touch on them. Um, I think when you, the first part of your question, which is really about as Human Rights Watch, how do we look at and analyze and frame issues, and whether we have the authority to delve into, as you said, sort of other framings, mm. particularly when it comes to the Middle East, sort of the, the religious or the tribal framing. Uh, there I would say, you know, we're really not well placed to do that. I think it would be incredibly uh, presumptuous of us to think that we have the knowledge and authority to do that. And I also think, if you're, if you're talking about an organization that is working in 90 countries around the world, it is essential that we apply the exact same legal underpinnings to our work, the exact same um, standards to our work, and the minute that we veer away from that in one particular conflict or one particular region, I think we lose the integrity of, of, of the name of Human Rights Watch and of our research. That being said, um, in some countries, the, for example, religious angle to trying to stop an abuse is the most persuasive one. And, and I'll talk very, very briefly about work that we did in Yemen when I was the Yemen researcher, and that was around um, female genital mutilation. And the work that we did there was supported by you know, our traditional type of research on the impacts, particularly from the, you know, the rights lens, um, of girls who, who went through female genital mutilation. But 
when we did the outreach on that issue and when we decided to make sort of an advocacy film on that issue, we as Human Rights Watch didn't take the forefront with me as the researcher sitting there telling the Yemenis why they should care about this issue. Instead, what we did was we provided a platform for religious leaders on the one hand and Yemeni health professionals on the other hand to use language that was much more persuasive to a Yemeni public, particularly to MPs because we were trying to push for um, a change in the law on this. And, and, and we, our job as Human Rights Watch was just to provide that platform from which religious leaders could say this is absolutely not a practice that we condone and that is con condoned by our interpretation of, of Islam. And for medical staff to say this is detrimental to your young daughter. Um, and, and I think there it was actually quite effective. But as I said, I mean, we, we, we as Human Rights Watch try and stay away from that because, because we simply don't have the qualifications generally to, to engage in that. When it comes to um, what's been, and some people in this room might not know, um, in northern Iraq you have the Kurdistan region of Iraq that has exercised an extremely large level of autonomy since 2003. And there have been grumblings for years that they would be pushing for independence. And about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, the government announced in, in the, the northern region that they will be holding a referendum for independence. Um, that issue ties into a bigger policy that we have at Human Rights Watch, which is that we never take sides when it comes to something like this. So whether you know a state should be formed, there should be a new country, anything like that. We also never take a position on whether, for example, a war should have started and whether a party to the conflict should have gone to war. Even though in some instances there are actually international laws around whether this is you know, a lawful war or not. But we as Human Rights Watch have decided since the beginning of, of, of the organization that this is an area that we don't wade in. And the reason we don't do that is because if we start to take sides, for example, saying that this war is unlawful, then we entirely lose the credibility to be doing work documenting abuses in the context of that war that actually has taken place. And when it comes to the Kurdistan region of Iraq and, you know, if, if it becomes independent, if it doesn't become independent, we take no position on, on what would be better for the people of Iraq. Um, I don't think I would even have, the, have the, the ability to tell you from a human rights perspective what is better for the citizens, whether it's citizens in, in, in Baghdad or whether it's citizens in Erbil, what for them is going to be better and what's going to lead to a minimizing abuse. I think um, you know what we've seen over the last two years is that the Kurdistan region of Iraq and the Kurdistan regional government have used the moment quite opportunistically and the fight against ISIS quite opportunistically to get a lot more weapons, a lot more weapons training for their army. And that is very much why we're seeing them today in a much stronger position pushing for independence. And in the context of that push, what we've seen and what Human Rights Watch has been um, documenting for the last uh, two and a half years is a campaign by the Kurdistan regional government in preparation for the announcement that we just saw to get rid of as many Sunni Arabs as possible from what, what they want to be their extended territory. So we issued a report in November where we looked at 83 villages, either entirely Sunni Arab villages within, as I said, sort of this expanded Kurdistan region of Iraq, um, in, which includes what are called the disputed territories, which are territories that on paper still belong to Baghdad, but the Kurdistan region wants, particularly because of, of, of oil wells there. And, uh, and what we've seen is with these 83 villages, they were either entirely Sunni Arab and they were razed to the ground, usually with bulldozers, or villages that were sort of 50-50, a Kurdish population, an Arab population, it was only the Arab houses that were demolished. And 
all of these families are now living in camps. They, they are not going to be going home because their homes have been destroyed and because the, the Kurdistan regional government doesn't want them to be going home. And the aim has really been to remove as many Sunni Arabs as possible in the run-up to this election um, and to this referendum because they don't want these people to be part of their new constituency. I was wondering if we could talk about um, sort of this from an Australian context. In 2014, the Australian government passed laws prohibiting travel to Mosul. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that, and um, considering we are one of the only countries to have those laws, just from a human rights perspective, what your thoughts are? Huh. I, I don't know that I have any specific thoughts on that. I mean, I, I think I can turn it over to my colleague who's been doing the work here in Australia because it's not an issue that I'm particularly familiar with. So maybe it's better for Elaine to... Sorry. And just to introduce my colleague who's the director of our Australia office. Or just in general, how sort of UK hasn't done this, the US hasn't done mm -hmm. this. Um, I'm going to have to sort of I mean, we actually made a submission when those laws were being approved, um, expressing our concern about the restrictions on travel to controlled areas, because it's not a blanket restriction, but the reality is you actually have to prove that you have what's called a legitimate purpose. And doing human rights work, the type of work that Belkis does, is not recognised as a legitimate purpose. So that was really our concern with the law. We talked about, you know, yes, we understand that there are concerns about, you know, the degree of foreign fighters and the reality is I think a, a number of countries have kind of similar laws but maybe not quite as broad as Australia's um, but you know unfortunately the the law has passed um, and so you know now we're trying to scrutinize exactly how it's being implemented. In terms of the effective question um, I think that's a very tough one to answer I think you know in the world in the global world that we live in if you want to figure out a way of getting somewhere you probably can get there and you know the amount of, of foreign fighters that you have in inside Mosul it's not the majority of fighters the majority are Iraqis but uh, but you still have a considerable number so I think you know these laws yeah it, it's it's hard to see how they could be incredibly effective um, yes thanks Belkis that's very informative a couple of just two questions if I may is there any possibility or do you think it's now too late for a similar um, um, awakening type movement that we saw in the 2006 period, the Sawa type movement, or is that now just too late for that to happen given what you described as the d destruction between the, uh, within those Sunni tribes? Uh, the second question is these families that you say have been identified as ISIS affiliated or ISIS connected and are not welcome back, where do they go? Given they're probably Sunni families, there's really nowhere else I could understand they could probably go in Iraq. Um, so the Sahwa movement, which was uh, a Sunni fighters movement that was a real effort after years of the, the military establishment in Iraq being dominated by Shia forces, this was an effort to try and get Sunni, Sunni fighters um, into, into a role um, with, with military uh, legitimacy. And that failed massively to 
a large extent because of the Americans. The Americans made a lot of promises that these guys would be integrated into the Iraqi forces and then that never came to be. And actually we saw a lot of these ex-Sahwa guys ending up going in the direction of ISIS because they had the military training, they ended up not getting the job that they were promised um, and were looking for a way of feeding their families uh, and went the other direction. I think, I think what you're seeing now is, is sort of the beginnings of a new type of Sahwa movement. And I think these tribal fighters, and at this point you've got 47 Sunni tribal units that have been integrated into what's called the Popular Mobilization Forces, which was historically a structure of the, of the Shia militias. But now there's a real effort to integrate Sunni tribal fighters, and that happened in the run-up to Mosul. You also have new Yazidi um, fighting units that have been integrated and multiple Christian uh, units from different um, elements of the Christian community that are all being integrated. I think they're going to get a, a certain robust military role when it comes to areas like Nineveh, uh, perhaps in Salah al-Din Diyala, uh, Anbar. And unfortunately, what I think is going to happen is as they become a more prominent military force, they will be in even more of a powerful position to continue to prey on those that they think were ISIS-affiliated. And because there is this deep history of mistrust on the side of the Sunni Arab population of Baghdad, one of the elements of that is if Baghdad arrested a guy for being ISIS, they had no real evidence against him and he gets released, the Sunni tribal leadership says well, we know that Baghdad doesn't know what they're doing. We know that there's no integrity to the justice system. We know he was ISIS and we're gonna exact our own punishment. And I think there is a certain um, understanding in Baghdad that there's going to be this, um, this concession to give these Sunni tribal forces sort of the, the, the free room to sort of take, take uh, considerable military authority, but then also to rule their own area. So I think we are actually seeing that, but in a more problematic way. Um, in terms of where these families go, that's a very, very good question, and I don't think anyone has an answer to that. What you saw when this first started happening was that a lot of these families headed in the direction of ISIS. So they headed up to Mosul, they headed to Qa'im, which is a city that's on the border with Syria and still under ISIS control, or small, small city. Um, but as ISIS is, is losing more and more territory, you are going to have a real question mark around where these families go because Baghdad definitely doesn't want them and the Kurdistan regional government definitely doesn't want them. And the reason there's no answer to this question or broader strategy about what happens to these families is that the displacement that we're seeing right now is happening at the very, very localized level. So you've got a local tribal official, a local governor who says, you know what, I don't want these 120 families under my control get rid of them. And he's looking at his little piece of the pie and he's not looking at the province next door and he's not looking at the national scope of this. And so if everyone is looking at it in terms of their little backyard, everyone keeps pushing these families and then as you said, where on earth do they go? And you know, probably a lot of them will end up in camps, camps that are um, pretty grim in terms of the types of conditions, camps where you really have to wonder, you know, from a national security standpoint, and this is something we continue to try and emphasize with coalition partners, if you've got families living for decades going forward in tents, you know, with young children with no educational opportunities, no employment opportunities, what on earth do you think is going to happen? And I mean, there you really see the, the makings of a continued wave of, 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 of young people joining extremist groups in Iraq. Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to get your opinion on a recent WikiLeaks release where they disclosed that the overwhelming majority, over 90% of the 
pro-ISIS social media uh, sort of commentaries have come out of Saudi Arabia. And like uh, what, we, what, we, what we should do to combat sure. those ideas and sort of close nation states that are running their own business, but it's clearly detrimental. You know, er early on in the, um, in the advent of ISIS, Human Rights Watch actually looked at whether we have um, any role to play in trying to essentially track the money, because money is what has allowed ISIS to be you know, in territorial control of certain areas for so long. And we decided pretty early on that we don't have the in-house expertise to do that. You know, there, there, there were moments where revenue streams by ISIS have changed. At one time, it was a lot of oil revenue because they were in control of territory with oil and they were able to sell, sell that via, via Turkey. Um, but then you've also had massive donations coming in from um, specific individuals in, to a certain extent, Gulf states. Saudi Arabia is one example, but you know, we've also seen instances of, of funding coming from Kuwait, from Qatar, from the UAE. And in fact, when it comes to our work on Syria, there was one massacre that we documented, not perpetuated by ISIS, by another um, extremist group. And we actually were able to identify three of the key funders of that unit and of that massacre, and these were, these were Kuwaiti individuals. In my previous position at Human Rights Watch, I was the Yemen and Kuwait um, researcher. And there I had a lot of discussions, particularly with the US Embassy in Kuwait. And they said at the time that they were leaning very hard on Gulf states to try and shore up that funding. And there were different levels of receptivity when it came to the Gulf governments. And some Gulf governments were willing to do a lot to try and shore up that funding. And other Gulf states were not willing to do as much. And so as a result, I think we've seen differing levels of funding continuing and, and, and this really, as, as, as far as I know, has been sort of in the form of private donations. Um, at, over time, I think, with a lot of that money having been shored up, with the oil revenue having gone down dramatically, what we've seen is, is a real change on the ISIS side, and that's been mass looting of sort of areas under their control, mass taxation of the population. So I think on the money side, they've been, they've been quite squeezed. Um, but... More broadly, what, what should be done at the political level? I think that that's, that's something that you know, we as Human Rights Watch don't have an opinion on, we don't have the research on, and as I said, we're not well-placed necessarily to be, to be weighing into that. You know, I mean, because the, the underpinnings of our work are really around the key principles of, of human rights and humanitarian law, you know, we on the one hand are a champion of the rights to free speech, and, and we, we believe in a very robust interpretation of, of what free speech is. But of course, at the same time, we believe that when you've got hate speech, incitement to violence, and, and, and there, you know, there's a very clear international standard of what that is. There it is actually an obligation of the government that's in control of, of, of whichever citizenry is putting out this hate speech or, in, or incitement to violence. They have an, an absolute obligation to, to put a stop to that. This may seem like a very naive question, but have we caused ISIS? Has the world caused ISIS? Did the invasion in the Middle East give rise to this backlash movement? And as such, we should own it and we should take responsibility and maybe the best thing we could do is start a movement to help women who are being suppressed within the Islamic area. Your opinion, please. Thank you for that. Um, 
I think it's I think it's a complex question to answer, and I think you know it's important to emphasize that from where I stand and talking to people who've lived under ISIS, in Iraq, ISIS is an Iraqi movement. These are Iraqi fighters for the most part, and their motivations for becoming ISIS fighters are very different to the motivations of a young guy from Australia or France traveling to Iraq or Syria to join ISIS. And I think the motivations are, are really fundamentally different. In Iraq, I would say that you know the, the fall of Saddam led to mass destabilization, and what we saw, which was an Iraqi-led process but condoned by the United States, was what was called the debathification process. And the idea was this mass purge of government officials, military commanders who were affiliated with Saddam. Those guys were and continue to be the key commanders in ISIS. And debathification, as I said, I mean, this was, this was an Iraqi process. This was led by a Shia government that wanted to carry out this purge, but it got the stamp of approval um, of, of the US and of other coalition partners. And, and so in, in that respect, you could say, of course, that you know, coalition partners, and particularly the US, did contribute to, to the situation that we have today and to the advent of ISIS. And as I said, you know, subsequent to the debathification process, we saw this mass campaign of abuse that really was a huge contributor towards uh, driving young men uh, to join ISIS. And again, sort of from where I sit at Human Rights Watch, we really didn't see enough being done by countries like the US and other countries that had sort of a, a level of, of authority to push for things in, in Iraq to change. They, they really didn't do enough to stop this campaign of abuse. I would say it's probably a combination of all three. I'm afraid we only have time for one more question. Um, in all its form, how has human aid been seen within these countries that are facing war? So, like, how has humanitarian aid been able to go and infiltrate these war zones and help out? Um, I'm not a humanitarian, and, uh, you know, I can't speak to what happens elsewhere in the world because I've been working in the Middle East for about 10 years, and... and in the recent years, it's really been the work that I've done in, in Yemen and, and in Iraq. I think the, you know, if we just talk about Mosul, for example, you have 600,000 people that have been displaced by the fighting. These people are, for the most part, getting tents, getting food, getting water every single day. And that's not because of the Iraqi government. That is because humanitarian organizations have stepped it up in the most incredible manner. And what you're talking about is... I was, at a, I was at a checkpoint a few days ago. There were 14,000 people that had come through that checkpoint that morning that were going to camps, right? So the, the, the number is massive. In any normal context, you know, it, it's astounding to think that the humanitarian community is, is able to keep up with that. They're struggling to keep up with it, but, but, but they are doing, I think, what is a remarkable job. And I think going forward, Mosul and the way that the humanitarian community has responded will probably become a real hallmark and high point for how the humanitarian community can get it together and, and respond to this urgent need. That being said, I think you see a lot of weaknesses in their approach as well. Um, one, one key one is that protection and protection of civilians has not been a robust central element, and that's why we see these checkpoints and detentions happening in camps where you've got thousands of men being disappeared. And there I think they've really missed the mark on that. Um, and the other thing that you don't see happening at all is, and you know, I get that this is very difficult, but there is no assistance crossing the line. So there is no one doing any assistance work that's getting assistance to the people that are still under ISIS. And you know, 
to a large extent, that's because we don't have, you know, human humanitarians don't have interlocutors on the other side that they can deal with. But I also don't think there has been enough creative thinking about how we can try and get assistance across to the other side. Human Rights Watch never disappoints. Please join me in thanking Belkis Filler. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.